0: Twenty-four of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your Sly as a Fox host, Kristen Haas, aka Kiki Writes. In this episode, I've got one season two episode of the 68 Hawaii Five-O. It'll be episode 22, Nightmare Road. And I'll also be covering a season two episode from the 2010 reboot of Hawaii Five-O. This will be episode 18, Lakeio. Now, when I started the podcast, I knew I would be covering some episodes of the reboot just because they do connect to the original 68 series. However, I thought it would be fun if, like in the previous season, I I did discuss Cocoon a little bit because they redid the 68 pilot for the season 9 opener. And I also discussed the 2010 pilot as well. So I thought it would be fun that even though I will be discussing episodes that relate to the 68 series, and since I didn't really watch the reboot, I watched pretty much all of the episodes for season 9 and season 10, but before that, just sporadically, I thought it would be fun for me just to pick a random episode from every season that I'm covering and talk about it. So the criteria for that when picking a reboot episode, because they do season arcs, obviously, was to pick more of a standalone episode, so we're not in the middle of a season arc trying to figure out what's going on. I went for a more standalone episode. There were two from the reboot season two that I really liked, and ultimately I went with Lakeio, which actually does have a very minor 68 series tie, and that is in the form of Jimmy Borges, who shows up in this episode briefly, But he also was in several episodes of the 68 series. And it also features Scott Kahn's father, James Kahn. And I am a sucker for things like that. When family members or husbands or wives or past co-stars show up in current projects, I live for it. One of my favorite episodes of the 68 series features James MacArthur's mother, Helen Hayes, playing his aunt. It is my thing. It is my jam. So that's how I picked this season's episode. But enough about all of that. Let's go to Hawaii.
1: This one rattled windows all the way to Washington. I just got a call from the Pentagon. Our baby? We're going to share the honors with the local arm of government intelligence. If the man who fired the shot was actually Dr. Royce, at least two witnesses seem convinced it was Dr. Royce. They saw leaving. We called his lab. Dr. Royce was very upset when he left, according to his assistant. Who's in charge here? Merrill Carson, over there. How soon will you have the apartment dusted? Maybe another two hours. Well, I expect a full report in three. I'd be more comfortable if I had uh, four or five. Listen, get comfortable on your day off, Jay. Can't promise anything, but I'll try, Steve. McGarrett, 5-0. Carson, did Washington contact you? Yeah. Dr. Royce is an important man. I got that impression. What have we got so far?
0: Season 2, Episode 22, Nightmare Road. Air date February 18th, 1970. Directed by John Newland. This is his second of two episodes. And written by Jack Turley. This is his second of three episodes. Teresa Dietrich calls her scientist boyfriend, Dr. John Royce, at his lab, claiming that a man is attempting to blackmail her for $1,000 because her uncle is in the country illegally. She begs Royce for help and he hurries to her apartment. Inside, he sees Teresa struggling with a man who drops a gun. Teresa yells at him to get the gun and shoot the assailant, which he does. Teresa and Royce then run from the apartment. As soon as they're gone, a man named Kreuter and his associate, Juan C, emerge from the next room. The supposedly dead man leaps to life, asking for his payment for such a marvelous performance. As Crowder assures him that he will get it once he shoots him in the back, taking pains to preserve Royce's fingerprints on the gun with a pair of vice-locking pliers. Arriving on the scene, Steve informs Danny that this murder goes all the way to the Pentagon because it turns out Royce is a very important scientist. Therefore, they'll be doing a joint investigation with Merrill Carson, who's less than pleasant. He informs Steve and Danny that witnesses ID'd Teresa and Royce as being in the apartment. The victim also has a name, Loquan, a small-time hood. Steve wants everything on Royce, including his work, which Carson balks at because it's classified. Steve doesn't care. DC wants 5-0's help, so they'll need everything. While Royce and Teresa hide out at Teresa's uncle's house near a construction site, Steve, Danny, and Carson check out Royce's lab. Royce's assistant, Dr. Logan, tells them that Dr. Royce has developed a new way of finding submarines and gives them a demonstration. This technology would be very valuable to the U.S. and its enemies. Royce is a little upset from the shooting, and Teresa soothes him by saying her uncle will arrive soon and help them. Turns out uncle is Kreuter, and he's more than willing to help them, even though the radio is calling Royce a murderer. Royce wants to turn himself in, but Kreuter has other ideas. In addition to Royce's fingerprints, Chae Fong also found an unusual impression on the gun. They also found unidentified fingerprints in the apartment, which they sent to D.C. Danny suddenly recognizes the marks as something from a vice. Steve realizes that it could be vice locking pliers, which would allow the gun to be fired without ruining the prints. He tests this theory on his own revolver and proves himself correct. This murder is an obvious frame job. Knowing it was a setup, Steve theorizes that Teresa was used as bait to lure Royce in. He has Kono and Chin sit on her apartment in case she comes back. Meanwhile, Kreuter is trying to talk Royce out of turning himself in. Knowing that Royce is in love with Teresa and would do anything to protect her, he tells him that she's also in the country illegally, and if he turned himself in, she would be deported. Royce gradually comes to realize that Kreuter's motivations aren't entirely out of love for his niece and asks what he really wants. Kreuter says that he has friends who greatly admire him and his work and would love to set him up in a lab in a place where he and Teresa could live happily ever after. Royce considers it. Later, Kreuter receives word from their Uber, a sub, that it will be waiting at the rendezvous point. Teresa comes in to tell him that Royce is sleeping thanks to some drugs. Kreuter questions her dedication to Sparkle Motion due to her lack of enthusiasm, but Teresa assures him that she's loyal to the cause and will do what is required of her. Critter and the rest of us aren't that convinced, and he reminds her that it will be better to have a willing defector rather than an unhappy hostage. Teresa goes back to her apartment, retrieving the mail, which includes a letter from immigration. Kono spots her going in, but is jumped by two howlies who knock him out. While one goes after Teresa and loses her but finds the envelope from immigration, the other searches Kono. Oops, he's five oh, and now he has a head injury, which puts Steve in a pissy mood which he takes out on Carson, reminding him that they're working together on this. Carson tells him that he only answers to D.C., and Steve reminds him that Hawaii is a state, not a foreign country. Once C shows the immigration letter to Kreuter, who has suspected that Teresa was up to something. He decides that once they successfully get Dr. Royce off the island, that Teresa will be killed. At the office, Dano gives Steve everything on Teresa and her ties with Kreuter, who basically is an agent loyal to the highest bidder. The paper has made Royce front page news at Steve's request. Dano doesn't think Carson will like it, and Steve doesn't care about Carson's feelings. He wants everyone on the island to know Royce's face. Kreuter uses the papers to further persuade Royce. Teresa is less than convincing in her encouragement to accept her uncle's help. Royce asks to take a walk so he can clear his head and come to a decision. Kreuter lets him, telling Teresa to go with him. Royce asks to be alone and Kreuter allows it, but understanding the nature of a calculated risk, has Wansi follow him. Walking down by the construction, Royce comes to his decision. He runs up to a nearby phone booth and calls Steve, but Wansi interrupts the call. I was totally going to do a Nightmare Road parody set to Old Town Road, but I'm not because I love you and I want you to be happy. Anyway, this episode's not too bad. You know me. I love elaborate plots. I love theatrical villains. This has the potential for that because the whole setup frame up plot to convince Royce to defect and go with them to another country that is not named to become their scientist and do scientist things for them. It's quite elaborate. I mean, we're faking a murder, then committing an actual murder. We have Teresa who is planted first to entice Dr. Royce into a relationship because everybody knows that middle-aged men will do anything for a young girl, especially if they think that they're in love with them. And we have this somewhat theatrical villain because he does wear an excellent hat. But overall, it's actually not that, it's not that overly dramatic. There's a lot going on. We do have some tension, but... It's not incredibly grand. There's not a whole lot of action. There's not a whole lot of fireworks happening. It's actually rather subdued. So it has the potential for being a bit over the top, but never goes. It never gets there. Which isn't to say that it's a bad episode. It's an enjoyable episode. It's just much more low-key than you anticipate when you first meet Kreuter and you get a, an idea of what this plan is about. And it's very much a, a Cold War type of a plot because we're trying to get this brilliant United States scientist to defect to another country and start working for them using his great science mind. Which, when you see the opening scene, the the opening scene of, of the episode is at Royce's lab, and you see these men in lab coats with wellies on wading through this red water with, like, I don't know, like, brooms almost. And you have absolutely no idea what kind of science is currently taking place my very first thought when I saw this is is this some sort of weird crawdad form because that's what it kind of made me think of it's just really really weird they and they don't explain it until later in the episode so you get you see Royce get the phone call from Teresa and leave things in the capable hands of his assistant Dr. Logan because they're doing some sort of experiment and you're like what could this experiment possibly be what the hell is going on here And then you come back later because Steve has asked for everything on Dr. Royce, including his work. So Steve, Danny, and Meryl Carson go to the laboratory, and they get an explanation and a demonstration.
1: Simplest terms, gentlemen, Dr. Royce has discovered a far more sophisticated method of locating enemy submarines than by the somewhat limited methods of sonar and radar. He's even given the project a name, a rather descriptive acronym, NOSE short for Nautical Observation of Submerged Enemy. Now, this method, when combined with sophisticated computer circuitry, can literally sniff through the ocean and detect if a submarine has passed within 100 miles, how long ago, and in what direction it was traveling.
0: So there it makes more sense and then it also drives home the point of why someone would be going to such pains to set up Dr. Royce as a murderer because it makes it more effective as a means of getting him out of the country. And of course I have no idea the validity of this science. It seems somewhat flawed in my very humble, uneducated opinion. But hey, it's 1970 and they make it look good. So much of this episode is actually Kreuter attempting to persuade Royce not to turn himself into the police but to go on the run to another country to be with Teresa and live happily ever after so the interesting thing is that when the initial scene happens the initial murder in air quotes scene happens and for that moment you think it's legit Teresa's afraid she said a man's been threatening her he comes in there is a mild scuffle. He gets the gun, and she's yelling at him to shoot him, and he does, and then they, he's very upset from that instant, but she gets him to leave. The next thing you know, these two men that you do not know come out of the bedroom. They nudge the body on the floor while they shut the door, and he jumps up once the door is shut, proving that he's alive. So now you know it's staged. So now the question is, how in on this is Teresa and or Royce? And then, of course, they kill Quan because they still need him to be dead. Otherwise, Royce is not going to be hunted by the police like they want him to. It won't be a convincing enough ruse to get him to defect to another country. But you're not going to find a small-time hood that's going to offer himself up as a murder victim and actually be murdered. They're in very short supply. You can't find them. So this was very logical on their part. And it was pretty ingenious of them to use the vice clamps to help preserve the fingerprints. Because I believe Steve makes a point that most people would have just used a handkerchief or something, and it might have smudged the fingerprints, but they wanted them perfectly intact, and that's why they used the vice clamp. The only drawback of that was, of course, the impressions that they left on the gun, which Chae Fong found later in the ballistics lab, which we get to see. We get to see the ballistics lab, and it's actually really neat very 1970s but it's brightly lit and clean and there's all sorts of guns on the wall so we do get to spend some time in there and learn about danny's past hobbies
1: you know what that looked like to me looks like somebody put the gun in a vice vice yeah plain everyday workshop vice when i was a kid i used to make jewelry out of soft metal copper brass and every time i put these stuff in a vice to work on it would leave marks like that. I guess that's why I tried a new profession.
0: <laughs> so it was kind of neat that in order to explain how Danny would recognize the vice claims that we find out that he used to make jewelry. And of course Steve is brilliant enough to use his own gun to demonstrate and leave the same marks. So now Five O definitely knows that this is a frame job. They just don't know why yet. Or who is behind it, and that's when they focus on Teresa because she must have been bait. And they come to that conclusion because they know from I believe talking to Dr. Royce's assistant, Dr. Logan, that he basically lived and breathed his work. He was kind of a lonely man because he slept at the lab. He was focused on his sciencing, and suddenly Teresa walks in to his life, and now he has this serendipitous moment where he's with this beautiful girl that's much younger than him which i will say that they do make a point of the age difference so we're not plain oblivious that this much older man is with this younger woman and it's completely normal they actually do point that out that there's there's quite the age gap which it actually probably isn't as much as it looks because you can never tell anybody's ages in the 1970s. Everybody looks a little bit older than what they are, but it's still pretty significant. And if we're going to be totally honest, still completely normal to be done in movies and on television in this day and age, without comment. So of course, Steve thinks their best move is to go for the girl, and it might be a long shot, but she may go back to her apartment. So he has Kono and Shinho stake it out. Steve.
1: Uh, what does Saoirse la Femme mean? Look for the woman.
0: Oh. And, of course, Steve is right because he's Steve McGarrett. And she, Teresa does go back to the apartment to get the mail because she's waiting on this immigration letter. And you get the payoff for that in the end. It's not just a plot device to help explain her lack of enthusiasm. And also, it's not just a way to make Crater put her life on the line. So she does go back for the mail. And Kono spots her, but Kono gets jumped by two guys who turn out to be working for Merrill Carson. Now Merrill is a really unpleasant guy. I've noticed that if you work for the government in any sort of law enforcement capacity, you tend to be something of a prick. Actually it could be argued that any law enforcement officer is something of a prick, but it seems to be magnified when you work for the government. So FBI, whatever Merrill Carson is, I don't remember if they said, but he works for the government. Anyway, from the very first time that we meet him, he's a bit of a dick. I don't think he appreciates that Five O is involved with this investigation, hence the reason why there is this stakeout happening that Steve does not know about, which is why Kono gets hurt. And we all know that Steve is not exactly forgiving, nor is he very understanding when it comes to one of his guys being hurt.
1: What's the idea of denting my man's skull with a gun butt? It was an unfortunate error. Why wasn't I informed that you put a stakeout on that apartment? I answered to Washington, Mr. McGarrett, not 5-0. If you prefer to make any formal complaints, I suggest you do it. There's no time for a formal complaint and you know it. Now, I will settle for your personal assurance that I will be informed of your agency's actions in advance. You have my personal assurance. I will do everything in my power to avoid any further errors.
0: So, yeah, he and Merrill Carson kind of butt heads a little bit. We actually don't see a whole lot of Carson. It's kind of in- implied a lot that he's keeping an eye on things, but he doesn't really seem to be doing anything except being a prick with a mustache, I guess. I don't know. I mean, we will see him again at the climax. Of course we will. But anyway, for most of the investigation, it's just Five O doing all of the dirty work, including poor kono getting bashed on the head. So meanwhile, we have Kreuter attempting to persuade Royce to defect willingly by putting Teresa on the line, saying, well, she's also here illegally. If you turn yourself in, she'll be drawn into the investigation. They'll deport her as well. I would be fine with that but oh she would it would break her heart for her to go because she loves you and this real great line of bull hockey and the thing is is that Teresa is you see it bit by bit she's becoming less and less enthusiastic about this plan like at the beginning when we have the first staged murder she is going for an Emmy with her acting skills she's totally in it when they first get to her uncle's house she's again being very comforting and it's all seems very very genuine my uncle will help us and then as soon as Kreuter comes in which she goes over and tells him how awful it is it's like that point right there you see that she's not acting like any niece that I know that would be hugging her uncle like that I mean it's very limp I suppose is the best way to put it and she recovers from that and she's very supportive to Royce But as the episode goes on, she's less and less enthusiastic about playing this role. And of course, Crater calls her out on it. And I'm not sure if it's Teresa's lack of enthusiasm or if it's Crater's insistence that Royce needs to leave the country, that Royce realizes there's something else going on here. I think it's Crater being so insistent because he's like, he calls him out for being an agent of some kind. And that's when Kreuter says, yes, I have friends that would love to have you in their country. They would give you your own lab, let you science as much as you want, and you and Teresa could live happily ever after. He's still hanging Teresa's happiness and freedom in with his. And as he points out later when he's talking to Teresa, that it's important that he feels comfortable and safe with them. I mean, he's a really good manipulator because he knows how to twist the knife, so to speak. He knows how, he knows when. Because when it looks like Royce is going to go to the police, that's when he drops that Teresa's illegal. Basically keeping the focus off of saving him, turn it to saving Teresa. So I have to give it to him. He is a master manipulator. However, how Royce didn't notice that something was up at the very beginning when we first meet Kreuter, I do not know. Here's the thing. So in the episode Teresa is apparently from the Philippines, as is the actress who plays her. However, Kreuter is not only not played by an actor from the Philippines, he's played by an English actor. So he's very clearly not Filipino, but it looks like they might have put a little bronzer on him to darken his skin, but that's it. But here's the thing. I can't tell if this is about of racist casting or if this is just part of the plot because he's a double agent. He can be from anywhere. He's not actually related to Teresa. He doesn't need to actually be Filipino or be from the country that they're doing this for because he's a double agent. He gets paid to do this. So I'm wondering if maybe the bronzer was his attempt to make him look more like he could be Teresa's relation. I don't know. But the fact that he goes through the whole thing with a very posh English accent kind of defeats the purpose. (laughs) So I don't know how Royce didn't catch on to this a little bit sooner. Maybe he was like, well, of course her uncle is actually illegally here from Britain. He just happened to be born and raised there. I don't know. It's curious. And I feel like maybe a scientist should have noticed that a little bit sooner. And in the end he does eventually realize it's all a ruse but not before he goes for his walk alone and he ends up going and walking down by the construction something that i noticed about this episode and actually one of the previous episodes is that there seems to be a lot of construction happening in honolulu at this time because these were just sites that they used they this was not for done for the show it's not fake construction sites Because there's a construction site down by where Porter is stationed. And then earlier we see that there is a bunch of construction happening across the street from the uh, apartment where Teresa lives. And that's actually where Kono's stationed for his stakeout and where he gets taken out by Carson's men. Well, in a previous episode, Cry Lie, we see Martin Sheen being chased through a construction area. It's a building that's either being constructed or renovated. So I find it interesting that there seems to be a lot of available construction sites to film on at this particular time. It makes sense in a, in a way because at this point, Hawaii had been a state for about 10 years, a little over 10 years. The tourism was really starting to ramp up. It was really being, for lack of a better way to express it, it was being colonized for progress to make it more Western. And making it more suitable for rich white people to go live there and retire there. So it kind of makes sense that there would be that much construction around. But it just, it was something that I noticed. But anyway, it's the construction that tips them off to where Royce is being held because he makes it up to a phone booth, which in this day and age, people would probably think it was a bit random for a phone booth to be put up there. And maybe it was, but it's not that random because it was, a red, it was a red box and it was along the highway. Back then, no cell phones. If your car broke down, you needed help. It made sense that you would walk over to a phone booth that would be nearby so you could call for a tow truck. But he makes it up to that phone booth and he makes this call to Steve. And unfortunately the call gets cut off by one C But not before Steve is able to record it and through the analysis of the phone call recording that they're able to figure out, oh, hey, he's near some construction. What you're hearing is a pile driver. Call the city and find out where there are pile drivers at. So we see this a lot in shows like this where they use the background noise to, to identify where someone's calling from. And I like that it has such precedence in shows like Hawaii Five O, which happened in the 60s and 70s. So the climax of the show, which I will not give away because you know me, I don't like doing spoilers. It's two things that happens. So obviously Royce finds out that he's been duped and he has a bit of a meltdown, but he's kind of in a situation. So he ends up having to go along with Carter and Teresa and the rest. And they're leaving in a bakery truck to make their rendezvous point. Then you have Five O, who have figured out where Royce probably is going to investigate it. And now it's a race for them to find Royce. I will say this about the climax. In a way, it's like I said, it's very subdued because we know what's happening. It, there is a bit of a race. There is a race for Kreuter to get his man to the rendezvous point. There is Teresa's impending doom because we know what will happen to her if they get Royce off the island safely. And then there's also the race for Five O to Find Crater and Royce. And what you get is a lot of driving. We have a lot of footage of driving. Most people I think would be bored by this or call it filler. Because when I watched both times that I watched it, to me it never really it never really had enough tension. There wasn't a, there wasn't that feeling of oh my gosh, time is running out. You never really had that. But what I found fascinating about it is because we are driving through Honolulu. So we're on the highway. We are driving through suburban neighborhoods. We're seeing aspects of Honolulu that most people do don't think about because it is so, especially on the mainland, especially with white people in the mainland, Hawaii is so given to us as a tourist destination and it's all about the beaches, it's all about the volcanoes, it's all about the luau's and the shows and the Hawaiian culture that's been sort of taken over and commodified for the tourism trade. We forget that this is actually a place where people live There's a city. Look, we're driving through a subdivision. It's showing us parts of Honolulu and parts of the island that you you don't necessarily think about because it's everyday. It's not exciting. It's not glamorous. It's just, it's home. I also feel pretty at home with this guest cast, so let's take a quick look at them. Dr. John Royce was played by Charles Aidman. He was one of the narrators on the 80s Twilight Zone. He also played Jeremy Pike on The Wild Wild West. He basically stepped in and subbed for Ross Martin for several episodes after Ross Martin had his heart attack. He also turned up in episodes of Mr. Lucky, Bourbon Street Beat, Perry Mason, Have Gun, Will Travel, Wagon Train, The Original Twilight Zone, Dick Van Dyke Show, The Andy Griffith Show, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, The Invaders, Gunsmoke, Ironside, The Virginian Mannix, Emergency, All in the Family, Kolchak the Night Stalker, The Blue Knight, The Six Million Dollar Man, Eight is Enough, MASH, Kojak, Bosom Buddies, Magnum P.I., and Cagney and Lacey. He was in the movies Uncommon Valor, Zoot Suit. Dirty Little Billy, Tell Them Willie Boy Is Here, and Chop Hill, and he was in the TV movies Menace on the Mountain, The Picture of Dorian Gray, The Invasion of Carol Enders, Amelia Earhart, Last Song, and Prime Suspect. Teresa Dietrich was played by Pilar Surratt, She turned up in episodes of 77 Sunset Strip, Hawaiian Eye, Maverick, The Islanders, Naked City, Stony Burke with Jack Lord, Burke's Law, I Spy, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, The Wild Wild West, The Fugitive, Star Trek, The Virginian, Mannix, the FBI, Mod Squad, and Bonanza. She was in the movies Seven Women from Hell, Battle at Bloody Beach, and Young Savages, and she was in the TV movie A Death of Innocence. Merrill Carson was played by Fred Bear. We'll see him in one more episode. He turned up in episodes of Bonanza, Thriller, Perry Mason, The Andy Griffith Show, Hawaiian Eye, Wagon Train, Twilight Zone, 77 Sunset Strip, The Outer Limits, The Munsters, Burke's Law, Honey West, Big Valley, Gummer Pile, The Virginian, Mission Impossible, Dan August, Mannix, Ironside, Six Million Dollar Man, The Rockford Files, Colchak the Night Stalker, Ellery Queen, Man from Atlantis, Kojak, Dallas, Lou Grant, and Chips. He was in the movies A Perfect Couple, The Organization, Assassination, and Fort Courageous. And he was in the TV movies Trial Run, In Broad Daylight, and The Mask of Alexander Cross. Kreuter was played by Ronald Long. He turned up in episodes of I Spy, The Islanders, 77 Sunset Strip, Hazel, Hawaiian Eye, Perry Mason, Batman, Mannix, The Wild Wild West, Ironside, Green Acres, Mission Impossible, I Dream of Jeannie, Hogan's Heroes, Bonanza, Bewitched, and Columbo. He was in the movies The List of Adrian Messenger, The Man from the Diners Club, The Notorious Landlady, and The Naked Road. And he was in the TV movie Wonder Woman the 74 movie with Kathy Lee Crosby. Dr. Logan was played by Bill Bigelow. This is his third of 15 episodes. We've also seen him in 40 Feet High at It Kills and Sweet Terror. Loquan was played by Greg Kim. This is his only credit and it's a good one because I forgot to mention he wore an eye patch for this episode and I have no idea if he wears one in real life or not. But I feel it added something to the very brief life of Loquan. One scene was played by George Groves. This is his first of five episodes. He also turned up in an episode of Magnum P.I. And in an uncredited role, one of Quarters Thugs was played by Danny Camacona. This is his seventh of 33 episodes. Our director for this episode, John Newland, he did two episodes of Hawaii Five-0 and this is his second one. His first one was Bored She Hung Herself and since I haven't discussed that episode because I haven't seen it yet, I'm going to go ahead and give you his details now. So he also directed 17 episodes of Robert Montgomery Presents, five episodes of The Thin Man, 23 episodes of The Loretta Young Show, 96 episodes of one step beyond 13 episodes of bachelor father four episodes of thriller four episodes of alfred hitchcock presents 21 episodes of dr kildare 24 episodes of peyton place 18 episodes of the man who was never there three episodes of name of the game four episodes of Insight, 12 episodes of Young Lawyers, three episodes of The Sixth Sense, four episodes of Harry 14 episodes of Policewoman, 18 episodes of Next Step Beyond, and three episodes of Wonder Woman. He also has directing credits for the movies The Legend of Hillbilly John, My Lover, My Son, The Spy with My Face, The Violators, and That Night. And he has directing credits for the TV movies Danger Has Two Faces, The Deadly Hunt, Crawl Space, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, A Sensitive, Passionate Man, Overboard, and The Suicide's Wife. Newland also has 42 acting credits, including The Loretta Young Show, Robert Montgomery Presents, Dr. Kildare, and Thriller. And that is Nightmare Road. Like I said, I like this episode it's kind of subdued compared to what it probably could be. It could have really gone over the top, but it, it never really got there. And like I said, the climax is probably not as thrilling as anybody wants, but I still find it interesting, and I do enjoy the character of Kreuter and his hat. It's a standard good Hawaii 5 episode, and if you're not in the mood for anything too exciting or too emotionally taxing, this is a good one to give a watch.
1: Connor? How's it head? It hurts only when I think about it. I think about it a lot. No, I don't want to talk about it. What's uh? That's all the rubberneckers. Our Vic, Bobby Reigns. The radio guy. Yeah. Oh man. You know this guy? Yeah, man. Raines. He's a comedic genius. He used to have a show back in New York. I used to listen to it all the time. Oh, sorry. it's still processing but it's looking like some type of an explosion like
0: an equipment malfunction more like a bomb 2010 hawaii 50 season 2 episode 18 lakeio air date february 27th 2012 directed by brian spicer and written by kyle harimoto Dennis Miller is an offensive pirate radio DJ named Bobby Rains operating on a boat offshore who is killed by a bomb rigged to his producer's sound effect board. After dealing with a couple of rabid fans who stole the coroner's van with Rains' body, planning to pull Weekend at Bernie's to a volcano on the Big Island, 5 investigation leads them to former New York City cop turned PI Tony Archer, played by James Caan. At first, they think he might have a vendetta because on Raines’s old New York City-based show, he ripped corrupt cops pretty good, and some of them ended up being friends with Archer. But it turns out that Archer was actually besties with Raines and is the godfather of Raines’s daughter, and he's been doing his own investigating, holding a security guard who was supposed to be on duty but was out at a bar with some chick hostage in the chum box on his boat. Steve and Danny turn the guy loose and take Archer in. Archer ends up helping with the investigation as Steve and Danny question a produce shop owner slash illegal fireworks supplier who sold the fireworks repurposed to make the bomb. The supplier remembers a farm truck which leads 5 and Archer to a man named Leland who's been harassing Reigns over his charity that helps runaways gain emancipation. The subject in question has experience with demolitions, but Archer doesn't think he did it because he thinks he's a coward. Five O still looks to bring him in. Leland's friend Karen points them in the direction of Manoa Falls, where Leland is apprehended. But somebody's lying, and someone else ends up dead. It's up to Five O and Archer to make sense of it all and nab the killer. One super cool thing about the 2010 reboot is that almost every single episode title is in Hawaiian, which I do. I find that really nifty as someone who started taking Hawaiian to help me with my pronunciation of names and place names and such for the podcast. I find it interesting when I can look at the episode titles and and recognize some words. However, it's me and I am terrible with pronunciation. It doesn't matter what language it is. Even English, I'm garbage. So I have no idea if I'm pronouncing like you right or not. Let's hope that I am. Also, I don't know if you can hear it, but there's someone mowing. It is, I'm recording this literally at almost 2 30 in the afternoon on a Thursday and there's someone mowing because it is mowing season. The competition is fierce for this year's mowing tournament, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, back to the episode. This episode's fun. It's a really entertaining episode. Like I said, I picked this because obviously I'm a sucker for family members or spouses or former scene partners coming in and playing something, someone completely different on a new show. So obviously I love that James Caan was in this. He's fabulous. Of course. It re- he really is a good time. He, he brings a lot of flavor to the character. And the best part about this too, I think, is that our victim, when the episode first opens, you see Bobby Rains and his producer on their little radio booth on their boat and it, it feels very much that, that Bobby Raines is just the typical shock shock type radio personality. And as we go through the episode, oh, he has a daughter that he cares about very much. Oh, he was involved with this charity to help runaways gain emancipation because his dad was a piece of shit and liked to beat on him. He ended up running away because he didn't have any options for help. That sort of thing. It humanizes our victim a little bit more and makes him not so stereotypical. So then you realize that whoever killed him, their motives weren't necessarily strictly because of what he did on the radio. So I liked that aspect of it. And I enjoyed the fact that we had in this minor little twist that Tony Archer ended up being besties with Bobby Rains instead of being an enemy because as they set it up, it would have made perfect sense because he was really outspoken about police corruption that Tony Archer who had friends who were implicated in it would have disliked him immensely and yet they turned out to be very good friends to the extent that Archer is the godfather of Bobby Raines's daughter who is a grown woman and married and we do see an interview with her at some point with her husband talking about her father and that he never really talked about his work but he had purchased a gun obtained a gun and gave her a gun for protection despite being staunchly anti-gun so it sets a possibility that he might have known that his life was in danger and then we later find out that it was tony that got him and his daughter the guns because he was concerned from the protests and stuff that he had seen about bobby's charity for the runaways So in addition to Bobby Raines being more than just a shock talk, we actually have Tony Archer being more than just a retired police officer, PI. There's a lot more going on to him. He really cared about Bobby. He really cares about his daughter. But the first meeting with him is fun because it happens on his boat. Steve and Danny go to talk to him and he greets Steve with a gun. And There are aspects of that meeting that are very reminiscent from the pilot. When Steve and Danny met for the first time, we're going to put our guns down and I'll count to three, that sort of thing. It happens again here with Steven and Archer. But the thing is, is that Archer goes back on it and pulls a, a gun again and unfortunately doesn't realize that Danny's behind him. So he's taken into custody. The whole interview with him on this boat is just absolutely fantastic.
1: Let's go back. How'd you know Rains from back in New York? Yeah. I did some work from New York, and I did a little work from here. So what kind of work? Uh, work, work like, uh, you know, after you retire work. Uh, a little of this, and a little of that. Okay, so, pretend I'm an idiot. Okay. Uh, security. <laughs> I did a little security for work. I mean, Bobby was a, a nutshell man, right? So, secure. Okay. I just. Not to me. I find it to be a very big coincidence that you used to work bomb squad. Now this guy's dead and he was killed by a bomb. Coincidence? Mm. You got me there, dude. You got me there. So let me tell you the story. Here's how it goes. I moved out here pretending I was going to retire. But because I was a good cop, I knew that this guy, too, would move out here someday. So one night, i paddle out to his yacht. And because I know how, I plant this very sophisticated bomb. Then I leave my prints all over the boat just to confuse you guys. I'm telling you, this was a perfect crime. My luck, I had to run into you to a Sherlocks. I mean, that is some amazing, amazing policeman. That was, that was great. That was very entertaining. He's wasting our time. Lock him up. Okay.
0: I mean, obviously, he's going to have great chemistry with his own kid. Him and Scott going back and forth is just fabulous. But Alex Laughlin going in with them, because he has really great chemistry with Scott Gone, throwing him into the mix, it makes for a really fun watch every scene that they're in. Because they're in together quite a bit, because after they take him into custody and they release the security guard from the chum box... They take him in. On the way in, they get the call about how the bomb was done with fireworks. So they're going to go... So they're looking for illegal fireworks dealers. And of course, Tony Archer's in the back seat telling him everything that they're doing wrong. And says, oh, he knows a guy. And the guy that he ends up knowing is Kamekona, whom I love. I love it when Kamekona pops up on the 2018 Magnum P.I. And I like him in the last few seasons that I watched of the 2010 Hawaii Five-0. He's a fun character. But early, in the earlier seasons, his relationship with was a was still a little bit standoffish. They weren't sure how to, much to trust each other. He was just a good source of info. And so it was very interesting to watch him meet on the street, like at a street market, with Tony Archer still in handcuffs and not wearing shoes. He was not wearing shoes on his boat. And so he has his shoes tied around his neck because he needed shoes to go to jail. The group of them talking in the, the street about where to get the illegal fireworks. And is saying that he can't take you there, but he can tell you where to go because he does not want to ruin his own contacts when it comes to getting fireworks. And finally, Steve relenting and uncuffing him so he can put on his shoes so they can go talk to this guy that Kamikona points them to. And the guy is played by Jimmy Borges, who, as I mentioned before, he was in multiple episodes of the original Hawaii 5 I think he did like 11 episodes. He showed up in the later seasons. So that's our little link with the original series. It was fun to watch him pop up in this as the produce shop owner slash illegal fireworks dealer. And of course, he leads them to the farm truck, which Tony Archer remembers seeing. He had actually taken surveillance pictures of it during one of the protests. And that's how they get their suspect Leland and when they're back at Five O headquarters and they're discussing him, I mean, he fits the profile. Bobby was killed with a bomb. He worked in demolitions. His son is one of the runaways that Bobby helped, and he felt that the charity had gotten in the way of a family business. So he had all of the motive and all of the means to do this, but uh, Tony says that he doesn't think he was the one because he was a coward. When the protest happened and the cops came in, Everybody else set it out and got arrested. He ran. So he doesn't think he has the guts to do it. But they're going to go look into him anyway. And they end up talking to his friend Karen, who ends up ratting him out to a certain extent, saying that she she stopped helping him after she saw some devices in his RV and said that he was up at Minowell Falls. And so, of course, they go and get him. And it's an unintentionally humorous scene because... Leland's in his RV eating something, breakfast maybe, I don't know. He's eating something and they pull up in the door and throw in a flashbang. And so you have this guy who's just like calmly eating his bran flakes. Next thing you know, the door comes open, a flashbang comes flying in and goes off and startles him and everything. So he gets arrested and it's in questioning him that they realize that there's some, something else much deeper and not thought of going on. And I don't want to spoil it for you in case you haven't watched it and you'd like to watch this episode. And I cur- encourage you to watch this episode because, like I said, it is a lot of fun. There's quite a bit of humor thanks to the trio of Steve, Danny, and Archer working together. There's also some humor in the scene in which the Corners van is stolen So like I said I haven't watched like a lot of episodes of the reboot but the ones that I have watched the coroner Max Bergman he's usually a very calm very logical unflappable character from what I've seen and his van gets stolen with Bobby Reigns's body in it and he comes running over to Steve and Danny and he is literally flipping his shit. It is hysterical to see him like lose his mind over this when he's normally just so cool, calm, and collected. So they get in the car, and they're they're chasing after this van. Of course, Danny has much in the way to critique Steve on his driving. Um, at one point, Kono calls to help them out to track this van, and he's like, Danny answers the phone, and he says, Kono, this isn't a good time. You're interrupting vehicular manslaughter. But they end up catching up with the van, which kind of crashes, and the back door pops open and the body starts to come out but doesn't come all the way out and Max runs over to the body.
1: The body's still here he's okay he's all you mean aside from the fact that he's dead right Max?
0: So it was really kind of fun to watch Max get worked up over the stolen corpse when everything I've every episode I've seen him in he he does not get worked up easily and of course then you have the two fans that stole the body they are called acolytes they call themselves acolytes
1: Sir. Yeah. So where exactly were you planning on taking this body? We're gonna fly him to the Big Island and toss him in the Kilauea volcano. Wait a minute, you're, you're flying commercially. Got like a week in a Bernie stuff. Okay. Well, that is without question the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Second, I get these guys out of here.
0: And so that was a really fun like just absolutely ridiculous yet you can totally see it happening because part of the reason why they got caught was they were live tweeting it on Twitter. It's absolutely ridiculous and yet so well grounded in reality. You can actually see this happening because the world is full of ridiculous incidents and so many of them end up playing out on Twitter. (laughs) Now I'm not going to do a full guest cast list like I normally do. I mentioned Jimmy Borges was in this episode as well as James Kahn, and obviously you should know who James Khan is. But I did want to mention just real quick, the director and the writer for this episode. So the director is Brian Spicer, he actually directed like thirty five episodes of the two thousand and ten Hawaii Five O. He's also directed as of this recording nine episodes of the two thousand and eighteen Magnum PI, including two of my favorites, which were A Kiss Before Dying in the first season and Make It Till Dawn in the second season. He also directed the movie Michael's Navy, and most importantly, he directed the Power Rangers movie, which yes, I did see in the theater. I took a bunch of the kids from my mom's daycare and we totally marked out to some Power Rangers on the big screen. The writer of this episode, Kyle Harimoto, he has writing credits for nine episodes of the 2010 Hawaii Five-O. He also has writing credits for 27 episodes of NCIS Los Angeles. He also has 26 story editor credits for the 2010 Hawaii Five O, and he has producer credits for 180 episodes of NCIS Los Angeles. And that's Lake Hill. I am so glad I picked this episode because it was, as I suspected, so much fun. It really is a fun episode. Just watching James Conn work is always a joy, but putting him with his son Scott and then putting him with Alex Laughlin and the rest of the Hawaii Five O team and watching him create this fully rounded character that was more than just a sarcastic ex New York City cop. Just absolute joy to watch. And unfortunately, this is Dee's only appearance in the entire 10 years of the show. So I'm kind of sad that Tony Archer never came back for another case, especially since he said he was going to hang around and be Steve and Danny's marriage counselor. So yeah, this one is super enjoyable, and I totally recommend it. You won't waste your time giving it a watch.
1: This is we're trying to work together. Maybe you could consider taking these things off. Maybe you can consider putting your shoes on no, Stop. Don't enable them.
0: And that is episode 24 of Bookum Dano. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the discussion about an old episode and a new episode and all of the mowing in the background. They just now stopped. Now that I'm finishing. Of course. Anyway, both of these episodes are enjoyable. Nightmare Road isn't quite as high-pitched and in- intense or over-the-top as you think it might be, but it's still a pretty enjoyable episode. And Lake Yo is a lot of fun. So you really don't lose out watching either one of these episodes. And yes, as you are discovering the joy that I know of the 1968 Hawaii Five-O series, I am discovering the joy of the 2010 reboot. So we're both learning together. If you want to do more learning, you can do that by going to my blog, KikiWritesAbout.com. It is the home of Bookum Dano. And if you want to learn in real time, you can do that by following me on Twitter at KikiWrites. Thank you once again for listening. So very much appreciated. And remember, if you shoot a guy, make sure he's actually dead and not part of some elaborate plot to get you to defect to another country. And if you're going to go to jail, make sure you got your shoes. Until next time, aloha.